Hey everyone, welcome to a special edition of the Going in Circles podcast. My name is Charles Simon. I am the host of the Going in Circles podcast network. Today we have Frank Vespi from theracingbiz.com, which is a website that's based in the Mid-Atlantic and covers all Mid-Atlantic racing, Maryland, uh, Pimlico and Laurel, Delaware, Monmouth, Penn, Parks, uh, Charlestown, uh, and I, I guess Colonial Downs as well when uh, when they run later this summer. Uh, but we're going to talk about the situation in, in uh, Maryland and uh, give a little recap of of his uh, view of the Preakness as he was on the ground and uh, on a hot hot weekend. But um, you know, talk a little bit about the situation regarding the refurbishing or rebuilding of, of Pimlico and, and Laurel and the couple sticky issues that need to be worked out uh and you know just uh we'll kick around some thoughts about the triple crown as well so stick with us we'll uh, be back in just one minute and uh we'll have frank vespi hey guys i wanted to talk to you quickly about some of the changes coming to the going in circles digest which is our sort of weekly newsletter that we've put out that covers a, a wide variety of topics uh, just lately, we've added some guest columnists. Sid Fernando wrote a great piece for us a couple weeks back. And Julian Brown has really helped us out with some uh, excellent handicapping uh, articles. And we're going to expand on the handicapping, especially uh, you know with Julian's writing, who, who used, Julian used to write for American Turf Monthly. Um, but it's something that uh, we... We think people seem to be interested in, and certainly any timely topic is, is something that's going to be covered, and uh, we're going to do a lot of uh, our weekly previews, especially for the big days and, and the Triple Crown races. Uh, we also want to put it out there that anyone that has something to say, you can be a guest writer. Just contact me. There's a variety of ways going in circles podcast at gmail.com is probably the easiest. And we'll uh, we'll put you out there. And we're not exactly uh, at the distribution point of the New York Times or anything, but we do get a lot of click-ons. And if you have something to say, well, we'll help you say it. All right, guys, if you have any suggestions, anything you want to hear about, anything you want to uh, read about, Hit me up, goingincirclespodcast.gmail.com, and uh, check it out, goingincirclesdigest.substack.com. Free subscription. Thanks, guys. Hey, Frank. Chuck, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Oh, everything's everything. Yeah. Hold on. Which is the only non-scorching place today down in Florida, but uh, <laughs> but you know it's 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 almost summer, so that's that's the way it's going to be. That, um, that's how you do it in Florida. You know, you got to know about some heat. Uh, seemed like it was pretty toasty over the weekend over uh, over at Pimlico. Yeah, I the weather has been so strange. I mean, it was uh, obviously Saturday was in the 90s. Today's in the 60s. I mean, it's just we're just all over the place right now. And, and I was talking to a trainer uh, yesterday who had a horse who had some heat stroke on, on Saturday and thought that, you know, obviously that would have affected her performance, which was not very good. Yeah, no, no doubt. And I, I think it's been my experience that heat stroke is something that uh, you never really can tell when it's going to hit a horse, but when the temperatures change in a drastic manner quickly, um, that's usually when you, you know, I, in my experience, we saw more of those things happening. You know, the horse's bodies just didn't have the time to adopt, you know, more or less, but uh, it's, it's, you know, unseasonably warm for, for Preakness weekend. That's for sure. Yeah, no, it, de it definitely was. And 
I mean, I think, you know, you, you would know better than I would, but uh, certainly, you know, talking to other trainers as well, it's kind of one of those things you, you just kind of don't know which horse is going to really be um, afflicted with the heat and which horse will just shrug it off. And uh, No, you know, we found uh, in South Florida, you'd be surprised that there's not more episodes of heat stroke in the summertime, but I, I really believe that, um, and I'm I'm uh, I'm not using any scientific basis, just kind of a, a personal uh, observation that once they get used to it, they they seem like they're okay with it, as long as you're making the proper, uh, taking the proper precautions, and you know keeping them cool before and after, and and um, you know making sure that their electrolyte levels are are proper, and and uh, that they drink plenty of, of fluids and 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 such, but uh. You know, we would see more heat strokes in, in the springtime when hmm. it would cool down and then, you know, it would be 65 for a couple of days and then it would be 85 and humid. That would be the time we, we would see it. And, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of one of those things that isn't it's not easily um, uh, noted, I guess, would, would say, like in the past performances. So. Uh, you know, if a horse isn't racing on Lasix and suddenly they get an L after a poor performance, much assume that, that they bled, right? But, um, <laughs> you know, a heat stroke can absolutely affect the horse. And, um, you know, sometimes I, I think you, know, you, you might see a horse's form uh, get a little muddied up and, and, and that might have been the reason. And, you know, it's, it's just one of those things that... Uh, it's not an easy thing to, to decipher, you know? Yeah, no, I, I, uh, I, I think that's exactly right. And it's one of the many areas uh, where the past performances don't give you information you wish you had while at the same time, you know, they give you other information that you really don't need or in formats that you don't need. Like for example, workouts timed in hundreds, like yeah. really, what does that tell me that that you know forty eight and four? How is how is forty eight point ninety seven telling me anything I need that forty eight and four did? <laughs> <laughs> no, that that's that's so true. And I mean, past performances. I, I was looking at a an old uh, someone had given me a, a bag full of uh, PPs from the eighties and nineties, and I was looking at them the other day. Uh, you know, just just more stuff that I really need, right? But um, <laughs> it, it's funny how how things have changed. How you know what we see now and uh, is so much different than than what we we used to see. Even uh, I was watching the races at, at uh, Pimlico on over the weekend on the track feed uh, through my ADW, and uh, it, it's 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 kind of interesting as well. Is on the screen than we used to have where they basically just had the odd, you know, and now you have uh, all kinds of different things on the screen. And, and um, I mean, of course it all gets dropped once they, they leave the gate, but uh, you know, just things, things change. And sometimes, uh, sometimes for the better and sometimes just like you said, information we probably don't need. Right. Sometimes it, sometimes they change for the better and sometimes they just change. Yeah. Yeah. As a, as a matter of fact, um, speaking of change, uh, there's been, uh, I, I tell you one time, one, one thing about horse racing is that there's never um, a period of time where if you have a podcast, you don't wind up having something to talk about because <laughs> away from i mean the big controversy of the week was um the triple crown changes or proposed changes uh right after of course the 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 uh topic of the day before that was rich strike skipping the preakness um but we're already on to issues of heisa and today was the feeling a bunch of phone calls from different areas of the country because people are sort of in a little bit of a panic that are starting to find out that um, according to the letter of the law, if you and your owners and your horses and the trainers and the jockeys aren't registered, 
as a covered person with the new high sub organization by July 1st that you will not be allowed to enter in races um which <laughs> which means there's going to be very little July 1st unless uh a, a lot of things change here in the next 5 weeks because uh it, it's been my experience over the years that uh, most difficult things as a trainer was getting everybody licensed and you know, from the outside, it doesn't seem like it should be that big of a It is, and, and communication is one of the biggest problems. People don't, because not all of us follow racing 24-7. You know, it's, it's kind of a thing for them to do. It's a little bit of a hobby, and maybe they follow the race a little bit, but, but they're not. They're not living and dying with it, so they don't see some of the uh, the warnings. Hey, you need to get licensed. You need to get registered. You need this. You need that. And it just became – we've tried over the years to, to come up with a central database and make it easier, but in the end, it's still a pain in the ass. And the massive undertaking – I'm not sure that the people on these boards of HISA have any understanding – of the massive um, task at, at hand here. We're talking about tens of thousands of people and tens of thousands of horses that all need to be registered through a single uh, website. And it just is, there's so much confusion to it. And, you know, then you read the headlines today and the Pollock report had, uh, you know, the, Steve Bick had the lady on yesterday uh, from the Texas Racing Commission. <laughs> the lady was actually a general in the army, um, but uh, you know she doesn't mess around. <laughs> but uh, you know, like Texas is basically saying, "Hey, we don't think we'll be able to run or have betting on races after July 1st if if Heise takes over, and they won't talk to us." You know, we're putting it out there, and I'm like, and I'm like, like man, this isn't this isn't how things are supposed to be rolled out, but. Um, there's a there's just there's a massive amount of confusion there's literally no transparency there's very little communication and i understand that the highest of people also are, are dealing with these lawsuits but i mean there's got to be some kind of apparatus that they can use to to delay some of this stuff because i think it's easy when you're sitting in a boardroom to say oh you know what look how easy it is to get to get registered you just do this you click this you do that you push this in you put that information in and bang you're 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 you're, uh, you're registered but you know i mean you might need to get the full paper like numbers off of the full paper well if you're an owner the full papers are probably in the racing office so you don't have easy access to that and uh, it just seems like there's going to be like a, a Mount Everest of red tape coming. And uh, I just don't, um, I, like I said, I've, I've been on the phone a lot of you know, today with people and in, in all over the country and, and no one seems to have any answers. So that's, that's frightening to me because uh, you know, that that's, it's right. It's, it's really not that far. No part of this Heisa thing feels like it was well thought out. I mean, you know, you you uh, you and I have talked about this. For example, the whole thing was we're going to do it with the USADA, the drug testing. It's going to be USADA. That's the gold standard. And then you get to it and, well, USADA is not going to do it. And I just there's a whole bevy of things where it's kind of like, you know, I, I go back to what Casey Stengel said with the 62 Mets. You know, can anybody here play this game? You know, it, it just nobody – they were so committed to getting HISA through and the LASIK ban and, and nationalized drug regulations. All this other stuff is kind of like, didn't anybody think about how this might work? And the answer clearly is no. Yeah, and I want people to understand that it's not as though we're against these things. We're not against them. I'm not. I've never been against good regulation, but it still has to be proven to me that this is going to be good regulation, and and we're not going to get hung up 
on a million little technical issues that weren't well thought out of or you know weren't, weren't well thought of uh, when they rolled this out and knowing how much more difficult it's going to be to roll something back um seems like you said like man it, we wanted to get it but I, and i don't agree with people say well it's better than what we have not necessarily <laughs> not necessarily it might yep. be a hundred times worse yep. No, it, it's true, and that it came without funding really poses a whole bunch of other issues because, you know, I don't guess most commissions are going to reduce, you know, I, I, I don't, most commission, I, I think most horsemen are going to continue to have to get their commission license, and then they're, but then Heist is going to be a whole giant, um, financial commitment on top of what you're already paying. Um, you know, I don't guess most commissions are going to be like, well, we're, we don't do X, Y, Z anymore. So we're kicking back all the money. That, that's not typically how these things work. And, and uh, I just, you know, it's an open-ended financial. I, I just, I think every horseman would say we need some kind of standardization of how this industry operates. But as you say, whether this is going to be the proper vehicle or the most efficient vehicle to accomplish that, uh, that's a big question that early returns aren't that great on. No, no, not at all. And, uh, you know, eventually we'll, we'll see, but I, I just have a feeling that um, unless they're just okay with, basically shutting down racing in this country for a couple weeks or because we we're not overflowing in entries um anywhere there's no place that's got uh an overflow of horses so if you take and you put um 20 or 30 percent of the horses on the sidelines because of issues with the owners or issues with the the horse's registration or or whatever i mean it just creates a smaller pool of horses to draw from. And it, it's, it's, uh, I don't know. We'll see. Anyways, <laughs> let's, um, let's, let's talk about what, what has happened and, and, uh, the, the weekend at, at, um, and it was sort of the first, uh, weekend back to a normal, uh, Preakness weekend. Um, so we'll like, you know, you were there. How, how did it go? Um, uh, how did it go? I, it was an interesting Preakness. You know, it's the first one we've had that was sort of normal, normal-ish in since 2019 after 2020 was in October and last year was limited attendance. Uh, so it was, uh, it, it was obviously very hot, uh, as we talked about earlier. Um, attendance was way down. I mean, they, the track is reporting 60,000 plus. That was the official attendance they provided, which is down from 130,000, which they uh, reported in 2019. Uh, they are essentially saying that's what we were hoping to accomplish. Uh, and true or not, they accomplished it. Uh, so it, it made for a very different sort of day, but it's still you know, for folks in Maryland, it's still a big deal. And, and you know, the Preakness is still the Preakness. And sure, the Derby winner didn't come. But look, the Derby winner wasn't going to win anyway. So, um, you know, you had Epicenter, who was kind of generally considered the best of the group to date. And then early voting, who looks like he might end up being the best of the group. But, um, you know, still a lot of a lot of cool stories out of it. A lot of a lot of great races. And, uh, and the weather held up. And so, you know, in the end, the Preakness is still the Preakness. It's still a pretty great weekend for Maryland racing. Yeah, that, that's true. And, and uh, people were kind of being a little bit critical on social media about the card. And, and it wasn't a great card when you compare it to the Belmont card or you compare it to the, uh, the Derby card. But, I mean, people have to be realistic about the, the, the difference in stature uh in some of the races that they have versus those other two locations and now there's a, a huge difference in purse money um yes it did it, it, it didn't exist three or four years ago uh with new york and and kentucky especially just more or less rolling in the dough and 
um, uh, you know, that, that's something that's just, uh, racing, you know, everything evolves. And, and unfortunately, um, the money just doesn't exist, uh, for the Maryland jockey club that, that it does for Churchill and does for Belmont. And, and that's just part of the, the, the deal. And, and actually, you know, I, I, on our month, big Monday show was talking about why I thought that changing the dates of the Preakness would be a big mistake. Uh, and part of the reason is that yes, the Preakness is still going to be the Preakness if you move it, but everything on the East coast stakes wise is sort of predicated around the Derby Preakness Belmont triple crown um, events including all of the undercard races. And when you start adjusting that and you start pushing things back, uh, because if, if Pimlico were to push back two weeks, well, Belmont can't stay where they're at. And if they were going to make it four weeks between the Derby and the Preakness, then it would make more sense to make it four weeks between the Preakness and the Belmont, as opposed to staying at three weeks there. Um, so all of a sudden you have this uncomfortable situation of a lot of grade one races that flow very nicely from Keeneland to Churchill to Belmont day, uh, don't. And Naira is going to have to run those races somewhere. They're not, not going to wait till July because then you're pushing up against Saratoga, which starts a couple weeks after the first week in, you know, of July. So, I mean, I look at it like, you know, we look at and people from the outside look at the Triple Crown as a singular thing, but it's operated by three entirely different, entirely independent companies. And if Preakness Day goes to a month after the Derby, I'm guaranteeing you Belmont is going to run a huge card against it. And maybe they'll, you know, acquiesce the last hour and a half to, to the Preakness uh, because it'll be on national TV and all that. But they're not going to move the Met Mile to July. They're not going to move the Acorn to July. They're not going to move the Manhattan to July. They're not, you know, all those races basically have to stay where they're at. And it's possible that they would run them the week before, but it's also possible to run them the same day because, you know, triple crown days are huge betting days uh, across the nation. And this year, actually, the numbers were down everywhere. But I think that is as much to do with, is, you know, the state of the economic um, you know, state of our country with inflation and gas being six dollars a gallon, uh, and and handles kind of been down here for a couple, a couple weeks, pretty much everywhere. So I, I don't know that uh, you know Derby Day was like the only day would that it wasn't, but um, but that Derby Day is kind of like its own universe, you know. Yeah, Derby Day lives in a different place than the rest of us. Right. You know, but and, and, I, I would, uh, Chuck, I, I, I so I, I have written on the racingbiz.com about this, and I, I did sort of a point counterpoint. I would like to see, uh, I, I'd like to see real consideration, let's put it this way, of modifying the dates of the Triple Crown. And I, I and I understand, I fully understand that I am a distinct minority in the racing universe, but I, I think for a couple reasons, and one, one is, one's the horse racing reason, people don't handle horses this way anymore. They just don't. It was when, you know, when they arrived at the schedule in 69, it was common for horses to run back in two days. Secretariat ran back in two weeks all the time, you know, affirmed all the time. The Jim Dandy was 11 days before the Travers. That, that was routine. Nobody handles horses like this anymore. But the other reason, you know, and I had this conversation with Tom Chukas, who had proposed a shift uh, when he was president of the Maryland Jockey Club. And it would be the thing that would have to happen if you did shift the dates. And your point, by, your point about Naira running against you is probably right. You're probably right. And, and that might be enough to, you know, the, I, the business element uh, of this is the most important. And I think, you know, it, it's, it's the best argument that the triple crown pretty much kind of works the way it is 
maybe we shouldn't mess with it. That's kind of the best argument to me. But what Tom's point was, if you spread it out a little more, you could have a horse go from the turf classic to the dinner party to the, uh, is it the Manhattan on Belmont weekend? You could have a horse go from the Oaks to the black eyed Susan to the acorn. You, you could start to do some things with some of these other races to make the whole product from, from beginning to end a better product. And obviously it would be incumbent then on the Maryland jockey club. They'd have to muscle up these undercards with more money. They would just have to. But the money exists. I mean, Maryland can't be competitive with New York and Kentucky, but Maryland is putting tons of money into, I mean, we run four, five, six hundred thousand dollar stakes every month. There's money out there to start saying, okay, maybe we don't need, you know, nine, six furlong Philly stakes this year. Maybe we could just, you know, put 500 on one of them. I'm just, you know as an example. So Maryland would have to do that, but it does open the possibility if you could get the parties to work together of really kind of making a much more compelling product across the entire length of the triple crown. And if it's the one time a year, and it is the one time a year that people who are not psychotic racing fans are paying attention. I think it's incumbent on us to at least think about how do we put our best foot forward when the public that, that isn't completely invested in racing is paying attention? No, those are good points. I actually proposed something in my, my newsletter uh, last week um, that this, the tweak that I would make if, if, if we needed to make a tweak would be to push the Preakness three weeks beyond the Derby and then three weeks to the Belmont where you would only be moving everything a week. And mm-hmm. It would. Uh, I also thought that maybe the Dixie should be cut back to a mile, and put some sort of bonus structure in using the uh, the Maker's Mark mile at at Keeneland. Um, you know, we we have a mile Breeders' Cup race on the turf. Let's create a mile division, because the way, like the problem with the Dixie is, there just isn't or you know, the dinner party. Um, which is really a stupid name for a steak. That was but, the uh, original name, though. I know, but like only Barkley Tag was alive when when they used to. <laughs> <laughs> but um, um, it's just a confusing name, you know. It's like dinner party. I don't remember a great horse named Dinner Party. <laughs> I looked up the horse named Dinner Party in Echo Basin. Believe me, they do not need a steak named after them. <laughs> but, um, not named for them. So. <laughs> but I, I think there's creative things that can be done. I don't think that you can make the stakes competitive um, enough uh, because I think you're going to have a real hard time getting the grades up enough. And, you know, if I'm a horseman in Maryland, do we really want to see money – uh, taken away from our our races that the Maryland guys are are running one two three in and putting it towards races that Steve Asmussen and Todd Fletcher are going to win. Um, I, I would have a I think you'd have a lot of pushback against that. But uh, me, I, I, I agree. A, a, a Mid Atlantic type focus would be so much better. Uh, even running having like a mini claiming crown for. Uh, you know, run a couple of the races on the, on the early part of the undercard. Um, those, I mean, you can kind of make quasi stakes out of those, and you're always going to get big fields. You know, which is kind of the the you know the the driving force at ten thirty in the morning. It doesn't really matter, you know, if it's a claiming crown type of starter race with a hundred twenty five thousand dollar purse with a twelve horse field. Or if it's a nine horse, uh, you know, A of the then with mostly horses from Laurel and, and Delaware. I mean, you want the 12 instead of the nine because of the, the business. And um, to me, like some having some of those match races and just to try to to, you know, give it a local flavor and just to make the field bigger, if anything else, because. I, guys don't run horses that much and and you know you can't cater to the top top guys anymore because number one they've already got everything else and <laughs> they're gonna pick they're gonna pick and choose and belmont's got so much freaking money that they keep putting up i mean the week before this raid last weekend uh belmont ran a a seven hundred thousand dollar race on the turf and they got like a five horse field 
You know, they they, yeah. they ran a hundred thousand dollar race the other day, and it didn't even fill for Saturday. They ran it Sunday, and it was three. You know, <laughs> so that's part of the problem too. Is that like the industry hasn't consolidated and and put up a, a cognizant stake schedule? It's just all over the place, and everybody runs their stakes based upon when they want to run. And and I don't know that the Preakness field is going to be all that much bigger if you, you made it four weeks. I mean, I look at the, 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 the Travers and I look at the Haskell and there's plenty of time in between all the races for those two races. And they, they get seven horse fields all the time. So it's, it's like the Derby is a different breed. People want to run in the Derby. People make outrageous claims. Look, Brian Lynch lost classic causeway today. And I don't exactly know the reason, but there was no way that horse should have been in the Kentucky Derby. And there's virtually no other race in the world. The owners probably would have pulled a, made a power play to force him to run in that race because it was the Kentucky Derby. And, uh, you know, the Derby's just got that, it's just got that mystique that you just cannot uh, match, and and that's just the way it is. And I just think that you're going to have a lot of horses that, that are in the Derby that really don't belong in the Derby and have been pressed to get in the Derby. And it doesn't matter if it's two weeks or three weeks or four weeks. They're just not ready to run back. And I I, I just honestly, that's just how I believe. And, and, I, and I really am frightened by um, racing's leadership's ability to – see the big picture and making changes. And you, you look at the triple crown and man, it's wildly successful. And I just wonder that, you know, I mean, I, I would looking at the, I mean, I, I look from the business side uh, at it too. And I, I think it's notable that, and I have no inside information at all on this, but the Belmont is going to Fox. Fox covers Churchill and Naira on a regular basis now. The Derby hasn't signed a con. The Churchill hasn't signed a contract uh, beyond, I think, 2025 with NBC for the Derby. And they had generally been signing long, long term contracts. And the Breeders' Cup runs out, their contract runs out in 2024. And I wouldn't be shocked to see Fox come in and, and try to take it all, take all of the horse yeah. racing, the horse racing network. And. If they do that, then they're going to have a lot to say about when the races are run. And to be honest, I think they, I think TV wants them run in a, in a closer period because the general public can keep much better track of races when they're run every 14 days, every 21 days, than if it's if it's uh, you know two months between the first and the last. Oh, I I think that's right, and and, and like I said, I, I mean I. You know, I, a lot of times people are like, oh, but it, it's supposed to be hard. And at least for me, that response is a non sequitur because, of course, it's always going to be hard. Winning three consecutive grade one races is always hard, no matter how yeah. far apart they are. But the business question is, to me, the critical question, right, is, uh, you know, is this configuration the best for the business? And the, the answer may be yes. But I guess I, 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 you know, the the kind of knee jerk, you know, basically when when Tom Chukas had brought this up a few years ago, Churchill, Churchill's like, you do whatever you want. We're running on the first Saturday in May. Um, so yeah. you, in the end, you really need uh, the Maryland Jockey. If the Maryland Jockey Club had any appetite for changing it, and my guess is, well, my guess is pretty certainly at this moment they do not. Um, but you'd have to, it Naira would have to coordinate with you. And then, uh, because as you said, I mean, Naira's got a lot more money. So if you, if you try to go without them, then Naira can make things sticky. Um, so you'd have to sort of coordinate and whether Naira ha has any appetite to coordinate on this stuff, my guess is they probably do not. So, uh, it may all be an academic question, but then you look at, you look at all other sports uh, since 1969, have their playoffs changed? Have their championship seasons changed? Yes, every single one has, except for racing. Yeah. You know, and, and why did they change? Because they looked at it and they said, we can make more money. Let's think about how we make more money. You know, racing's kind of the only one that goes like, well, we're doing okay here, so we can't ever touch anything ever again. You, you know, there's another point that, that surprised me that that I really kind of hadn't 
considered up until the COVID era when the Belmont State was changed and obviously everything was in upheaval at the time and and they changed the distance to a mile and a quarter and, and it was run as the first leg of the triple crown that year and i recall and this was really surprising to me i was taken aback by the amount of um almost unreasonable um <laughs> anger that they changed the distance of the belmont and I was very much in the camp of, hey, listen, there's no races for two months prior to the Belmont. <laughs> like, you're asking horses to run a mile and a quarter is a lot, a mile and a half. I mean, come on. It's like we're in a pandemic of all, like, this isn't normal circumstances. The Derby and the Preakness haven't been run. So, like, yeah, it's it's not going to be the same. But there was absolute, uh, I, I would say about 90% of people were really mad and like, like super mad. And, and I, I got to thinking, I'm like, you know, there's something about the tradition of the triple crown that, that people love. And it's, it's something that I think that we really risk, um, ruining by, by changing it, even though you and I can sit here and make all the arguments in the world why it, it would make more business sense, it would it would do this, it would do that, but we don't have a lot of mainstream uh, eyes on us very often, and it almost feels like changing it is going to you just lose some of that. Hey, this is what they've been doing forever because people. You polled most people that are even casual racing fans, and you say, "Well, how long has the Triple Crown been run at the distances and 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 with this spacing?" Everyone would say, "Oh shit, it's back to Man of War," <laughs> you know? Yeah, right. <laughs> so, I know nobody would say, uh, you know, the year the Mets won the first World Series, which, which, which seems is, like you know, which was, is the actual answer. <laughs> yeah, no, you're you're right. People think that this was like handed down from on high, you know, the racing gods when they created racing said, this is the triple crown. And, you know, it, it, it's not that way, obviously, but, uh, you know, I, and at some level, I think this is an interesting and probably academic conversation because if Naira is not going to move, the MJC is not going to move and nothing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it doesn't really matter what you and I think, but well, um, <laughs> This was actually kind of an interesting conversation about a topic. Well, let, let's talk about a, a topic concerning Maryland and, and Pimlico and Laurel. It's maybe not quite as, uh, you know, fun. Uh, what's going on with the funding and the renovations of the racetracks? And like, where, where do we sit now? Because this was stuff was those bond bills were passed a couple of years ago and, and obviously we had the COVID issue, but it seems like nothing is moving. That's um, probably a reasonably accurate summary. Um, so as you, as you mentioned, the, the bond bill, uh, the racing and community development act passed in 2020, they were actually racing against uh, the end of the session and COVID and, it's kind of an insane asylum, but they got the bill passed. The governor, the governor actually did not sign it. He allowed it to become law without his signature. Um, but uh, that bill made, you know, ballpark of four hundred million dollars available for the, the Maryland Stadium Authority to issue bonds to for the renovation of Pimlico and Laurel. And the basic premise of all this is that. Laurel will become the home of day-to-day -day racing in Maryland. That's where all the training will be, all the barns will be, most of the racing will be there. Pimlico will be basically for the Preakness meet, and it'll be all shipping. You know, the, I guess they'll, they'll put up stabling sufficient for in-today horses, but that's going to be about it. So that's the premise, and, and that's where they started. And um, two years later... Basically, in this most recent session, the legislature passed a, a new law saying, um, figure out how to cut costs and get going. Um, and they directed that the, the principals will have to submit various reports to the legislature within, um, you know, within a few months, in September and January. And one, there, there, there are a bunch of issues here. One is tax liability. 
And under under um, revised federal law, under federal law that came in while Trump was president, under the big tax bill they did, uh, the Stronach Group, because they would main, although they would give up ownership of Pimlico, they would maintain ownership of Laurel. Uh, under that, under the new legislation, the uh, improvements funded by the government to Laurel would be taxed at the capital gains rate as they occur which essentially means that the Stronach Group would be looking at tens of millions of dollars of tax liability, like 40, maybe even more. And, you know, they're not making money in Maryland. It, they're kind of looking at this saying, doesn't really make sense for us to take on a lot of tax liability here. And it's hard to argue with that. So resolving the question of how they, how, how they get out from under that liability is one important issue. Another important issue is it's an you know uh, the guy a guy for the, the vice president the stadium authority said to me you know we've worked on a lot of complex projects but this one takes the cake and it takes the cake because what you're trying to do is you're trying to renovate Pimlico in such a way that it not only becomes the you know long-term future fitting home of the Preakness but also in such a way that the Preakness is always run there without ever leaving not in other words not even for a year while you're renovating it that it's able to stay at pimlico while you're re renovating pimlico at the same time you you can't have racing closed down so you can't have laurel just closed down because you got to keep racing so how you manage these things is complicated. Then you got other issues. You're trying to add a tapita surface at, or a synthetic surface of some flavor at Laurel to go with the dirt and turf. That's complicated. How you work that out? Do you need a training track where the barns are going to go? All these things are complicated. And then with COVID, you've got supply chain issues. Now you have rampant inflation. You have labor force shortages. You got all these things raising the price raising the budget on what was really honestly always kind of a shoestring budget anyway, given what you were trying to accomplish. So it's been an extremely complicated project. And basically the legislature has now said, in essence, we don't care how complicated it is. We're now going to make you come back to us and report in the next several months on what you're doing to tee us up for what we're going to do in the next session. So that's where we stand. So why are they so adamant about not having a non-Baltimore Preakness, even if it was just for one year? As I mean, obviously there's a lot of issues, and I know they're very sensitive about about losing that, but I mean, it just seems almost unreasonable to think that you can build a track while you're renovating another track while you're racing, you know, 12 <laughs> months out of the year. I mean, it's no, almost it, like a puzzle that doesn't have a have a have an answer. Uh, well, yes. Uh, I mean, what you said is exactly right. And it's a very, uh, you know, Pimlico has been the problem no one could solve for years. And I mean, for decades, really. Um, and. I, I think the sensitivity is really the issue. And, uh, I, you know, when, you know, going back to the 60s, you know, when the National Hockey League expand, expanded in whatever year that 66, 67, whatever year that was, Baltimore was considered one of the front runners to get a team. They didn't get a team. Um, then uh, the Bullets, the Baltimore Bullets, decamped to Landover and became Washington. Then the Colts left under cover of night and moved to Indianapolis. And there is this kind of tortured history with sports in Baltimore and this, this kind of feeling of always being left at the altar. And I think there's a real fear that if, you know, what if the Preakness went to Laurel for a year and instead of doing a hundred million, they did 130, you know, in handle. And then all of a sudden everybody would say, well, ha, it's much better here. So there's, there's this feeling of like, we can't let it go because if we let it go, it might never come back. And so yeah. it's got to stay. <laughs> and it, I, I think I should, I think that's really important to understand is the legislature 
really cares about keeping the Preakness at Pimlico and Pimlico in Northwest Baltimore. The legislature really doesn't care about Laurel Park, even a tiny little bit. And mm -hmm. the money that was made available to Laurel was essentially because the horseman said, and rightly, we, we have to have Laurel. If we're doing all the things we're doing to Pimlico, so that Pimlico is essentially a 12 days a year festival track and nothing else, then we have to have renovations at Laurel. And the legislature basically said, okay, fine. But you know, when they're, what they're pushing them, the uh, jockey club and the horsemen to do now is essentially to report on Pimlico. That's what they care about. So, um, so in addition to this sort of tortured history, all, where the political muscle lines up at the moment is behind Pimlico. So that's the other piece. So uh, it's like a, a, a puzzle that, that might be missing a couple pieces. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, like I, I guess it was in the sixties, they renovated uh, Belmont and they just ran, did they run a Belmont at Aqueduct? Yeah. Yeah. The Belmont um, was run at Aqueduct a couple of years. Yeah, and obviously the better way to handle this would be to essentially to have one track go first and then the next track. Right. Um, but that's not <laughs> that ain't how it's going to happen. So it, you're going to have to be working on two tracks. Uh, that's yeah, the two tracks will be on two tracks on on so moving on sort of parallel tracks, and that's not really. That's not how you would do it if you could draw it up the way you wanted. But uh, but given the history, given the skittishness, given that money has been made available for improvements at Pimlico in years past and those those improvements didn't come to fruition, this is how it's going to have to be now. Yeah, yeah. It just uh, nothing, nothing is ever easy. <laughs> um. Now, uh, speaking of the Mid-Atlantic area and not making things easy, uh, it seems like there's going to be a bigger strain on the horse population now with Delaware opening up uh, this week, right? They open up uh, today. Open up today. Today's yeah. opening day. Yeah, yep. today. Yep. So um, have you been down there at all yet? Any time to get down there? And I haven't been up to Delaware yet, but I, I will be soon. They're, you know, they're one of the one of the tracks we work very closely with and they, they've been good partners to work with over the years. It's, it's going to be hard, you know, I mean, they, it's opening day. They got an eight race card and one of the races was uh, five scratched down to four, um, you know, and you look at, uh, I mean, you look at the struggles, I mean, Pimlico, you know, they had 14 races uh, Friday, Saturday, this past weekend, they had eight on Thursday, <laughs> You know, yeah. it, it's just a struggle. There just aren't that many horses. So now we're going to have Monmouth and Delaware and Pimlico, which will soon be Laurel, and Parks and Penn National and Charlestown. And uh, it's, I don't know, e each year that struggle gets harder. I, you know, people have told me that there, there's, you know, there's room in the barn area at pretty much every track right now. So, yeah. Uh, you know, if you if you're if you're a horseman, uh, it's it's a struggle to find horses. But if you can find a good horse, there's going to be plenty of short fields for you to run. In. No, that's uh, that's the truth. Is uh, it's it's never been a better time to own horses. You got big purses and small fields, and it, the trick is to find a horse that can get in races that run. You know, that's yeah. that's one of the problems. You know, people have horses and they can't get into proper races because the they never fill and. You know, it's a, that that's a nationwide problem. That's not just a mid-Atlantic problem. But uh, I mean, I know Delaware is 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 under the first year of new ownership, so um, yes, seems like the at least they had talked about. You know, they didn't really say. It didn't seem like they they made a lot of plans into doing anything different. But they seem like they're committed to racing, so that's not a bad thing. No, I, I mean, I think, you know, so far so good. Um, I was talking to people at Delaware. They, they kind of feel like it's, uh, you know, people on the racing side feel like things have been kind of more or less similar to what they have been, uh, you know, what they were for years under the Rickman family so far. Um, and, you know, they've made a couple of 
small tweaks that I think are probably maybe good ones may prove to be good ones. You know, they moved up the post time. They Delaware had a, a one fifteen post. They moved it up to twelve thirty. I suspect that was, you know, they felt like that might find a sweeter spot in the simulcast market. Uh, and then they also, um, they kind of standardized their schedule. They're going to race Wednesday, Thursday. They're going to race Wednesday through Saturday, except sometimes it'll be without Fridays. You know, right. over the last couple of years, they had this Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, Saturday schedule. And I kind of, I kind of feel like it makes more sense to run uh, consecutive days than it does to run a day, a day off, a day, a day. Yeah, you, you know, I, I, I think it, it becomes easier for people to find you if they can kind of get in the habit of knowing where you are. So we'll see. I, I you know, I, I think everybody is. Hopeful. I mean, Delaware Park is, is such a great facility and, you know, you'd really like to see racing thrive there. And they had some good things happen last year. Their Delaware Handicap Day, they did really good handle on, which uh, much better than the year before. So maybe things are moving in the right direction and maybe the new ownership will, you know, bring some energy or ideas that, that help it grow. It, it, we're, we're, I guess we'll learn a lot over the next few weeks. Yes, sir. We will. Um, Delaware is it's a it's a it's a nice place. It really is. Uh, the paddock is beautiful, and uh, I think the last time I ran a horse there, I won. So I have a, <laughs> good memories. That always makes it beautiful, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, anyways, Frank, I appreciate your time, and uh, you can check out Frank as uh, Frank's website, theracingbiz.com, uh, for all your Mid Atlantic racing needs. Um. And uh, like I said, we, we appreciate your time and uh, uh, all your insight. Well, thanks, Chuck. It's always a pleasure to catch up with you and, and, uh, and you know, listen to the podcast and participate in the podcast. So thanks for having me on. Awesome, Frank. All right. Thank you, Frank. All right. Thanks, Chuck.